0: them
1: out of this ball game throw them out in the crow bring us some baseball knowledge back that don't, don't want us to ever come back
2: welcome back to the real voices in the game productions I'm Dave Dagostino and I'm here with one of our flagship programs A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will, Mark Wiley and Will George, uh, two of our most well-thought-of pitching coaches, scouts in the game of baseball. I want to just have a quick reminder to our audience as we hit episode 116. Our followers have been great, almost 11,500 subscribers. You can get us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Remember to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Uh, We're very communicative on there download, listen, like, subscribe. Uh, This is going to be a great show for you today. If you got to listen to the banter before the show and and even earlier in the day, you're in for a live one today. So with that, Will, you had a little special uh, intro you wanted to do today for our guest.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to have Bill Shearer on. Um, Bill and I are original Florida Marlin Scouts in uh, 1992 And uh, we played against each other, Uh, another fellow left-handed pitcher, but more importantly, a passionate, uh, great guy, baseball guy, but more importantly, a great friend. And as I talk about um, on the shows all the time, uh, the game is about the relationships that we develop. And I'm really fortunate that two of my best friends in baseball are on this show today and Mark and Billy and... Uh, I think it'll be a great show. So I'm going to let Mark go through Billy's uh, bio, which is extremely uh, impressive. And uh, enjoy the show, everybody. Thanks,
0: Will. Um, I'm also really pleased to have Billy on. He's one of the best baseball people I know. I think he's going to get some great insights from Bill. Bill was, uh, in 1977, Bill graduated from Bishop O'Hara High School um, up near Buffalo, New York. Um, amazing thing about Bill was he, he gave up one earned run his senior year. I don't care where you play. You can say there's not as many games, but anytime you pitch a whole season and only give up one earned run, um, that's impressive. He uh, had a lot of accolades in high school. Uh, some of which were the Manhattan Club title, all that all Catholic team, the all Western Florida New York team. I'm sorry, and the Parade Magazine All American. In 1976, he was drafted in the June draft, the sixth round by the Indians. Didn't sign in '77. He was the first pick, as you would think, after his senior year in high school for the Cincinnati Reds, and and signed with them. From 1978 to 82, he played in the Cincinnati Reds minor league system, making it to the major leagues in 1982 uh, through 1984, and then actually he returned to the Cincinnati Reds in, later in his career in 1987. Uh, he went; he got traded from the Cincinnati Reds uh, to the Detroit Tigers in 1984, the year they went to the World Series. They wanted some uh, they wanted another left-hander in the bullpen. They thought it would help him out, and it did. Uh, they won the World Series, and then uh, he was with Detroit up until 86, then 88. He was with the Baltimore Orioles and the Philadelphia Phillies. So he had parts of seven seasons in the major leagues. Um, he, uh, a little note, he was the last pitcher to throw to Johnny Bench as a catcher, striking out all all three hitters he faced in the inning he pitched. Um in his career, uh, left handed hitters hit 210 against him with only six home runs and had a slugging, slugging percentage of 291, which is unbelievable. Uh, after he finished playing, he started his scouting career with the Marlins, as Will said, in 1992 through 1997. Uh, he moved to the Cincinnati Reds as a national cross checker in '98 to 2002. Uh, From 2002 to 2004, he was a professional scout with the Chicago White Sox. Then in 2005, until now, has been the assistant to the general manager of the Chicago White Sox. Some awards that he's, or achievements, I should say, that he's had uh, in baseball. In 1990, uh, he was on the Caribbean Series champion for the Dominican Republic in 1990. In 1994, he was voted Scout of the Year by the Toronto Sun newspaper. In 1984, he won the World Series with uh, Detroit Tigers. 1997, he was with the Marlins when they won the World Series. And in 2005, he was with the Chicago White Sox as part of their front office when they won the World Series. Uh, In 2006, he was voted into the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame. He's a legend in Buffalo, in baseball, and we're so happy to have you, Bill. And uh, and, and I know your stories and, and your insights are going to be really valuable to our listeners.
3: Okay. Go Bills.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Sorry about the Bills. That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. <laughs> Everybody's got to be an Eagles fan this week. Yeah, I know. Either right. Eagles or Chiefs, yeah. You're right. Well, you know...
0: There's one note that I have here, and I wonder if you'll be able to say it right off the top of your head. Bill played for or with 13 Hall of Famers
3: in his career in baseball. Can you name those, Bill? Well, you know, as crazy as my career was, and the, when they put journey, journeyman, I think the definition has got to be BS, which is my initials, Bill Shear. Um, so when I think of those guys, I think of Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Tony Perez and Tom Seaver, Barry Larkin, <laughs> Alan Trammell, Jack Morris, Sparky Anderson, Frank Robinson, Mike Schmidt, Cal Ripken Jr., Eddie Murray, and finally, briefly, a pitching coach named Fergie Jenkins. And so, as I would tell Jim Fergosi when we were riding in the car, the late Jim Fergosi, I said, as crazy as my career was, and it was, I said, just imagine that I was a part of 13 Hall of Famers. And I told them, I said, and you can't use all-star games to say you were with 13 Hall of Famers. And I think it finally made Fergosi speechless because he couldn't name 13 guys. (laughs) That's unbelievable. Yeah, Yeah, he was.
0: You know, we know that you, you had a lot of mentors in the game. Um, You know, who were some of the mentors you had, you know, as a player and and as a scout front office, whatever
3: (laughs) uh, guys that gave you some insights and, 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 and kind of directed your philosophy. Well, you know, coming up from the Reds, you know, and anybody knows the Reds back in those days, it was short hair and black spikes and, you know, you feel like you're in the military with the Reds. Most teams are like, maybe I've been like that too. So I came in with long hair and, and so they told me to cut it. I said, well, there's no chance you're going to cut this hair. It's not going to happen. So when they start finding you 25 and 50, which I had pennies in my pocket, eventually I never got out of the locker room. And that's finally, I got to the point where I don't really give a shit about my hair anymore. So I look at Ronnie Plaza, um, you know, a guy who's a field coordinator and everything else, uh, more of a general. um, But he, I I always think of him. I think of Scotty Breeden in the minors. A lot of people think of the big league guys. And for the 11, 12, 13 years of the minor leagues, there was a lot of people that I, they touched me, but didn't touch me very long because I was gone the next bus or flight later. But Um, but the reds were some, when I go to all these different organizations, I've always believed that my heart is always going to be a Cincinnati red because they taught me, um, who else would I say? Um, in the bullpen, I would say Tommy Young, because in our days, you started before you got the opportunity to get to the big leagues and then you were in the bullpen. And so when I eventually became a reliever, Tommy Hume, it's usually veteran guys that helped young guys, um, they're somewhat like that. Unfortunately, there's a lot of veteran guys that don't stay around anymore because of money. So I think of Tommy Hume. I think of Johnny Bench because only Bench took care of me and bought me my first suit coat. Um, there's, there's, I can go on and on. It's almost like music. It's like a loaded question. What's your favorite song? Who's your favorite artist? And it depends on the mood swing. And so I could sit here and tell you about Paul Rogers and Bad Company, but I could also tell you about, you know, Gar- uh, uh, Marvin Gaye. I could talk about so many things, I love music as well. So I've been around with so many guys from the coaching side to the player side, from the minor league side to the scouting side. So when I sit on the porch, I think of history. I think of what they've done. I pinch myself all the time about the people I was associated with and around, whether it's scouting or coaching or playing. And, and you realize how blessed, how lucky we all have been. And, and now that we're in 2023 and through time and change, um, and that's what life is about. Like this computer that it took us two plus hours, not me my wife to get on the air. Um, I th- i think of all that. I think of guys when I talk to Gary Reedus or Skeeter Burns or a- Alan Trammell, or I, you know, I talked to Johnny Bench last week to see how he was doing. And it, but then I'll talk to minor league guys that I get mad if I don't remember them or where we played. you know, whether it was in Eugene or Tampa or somewhere else, Mike Compton, I talked to a couple of weeks and you know, a legendary guy in the player development. And so when you ask that question, um, I would say in scouting, maybe Dick Egan because he was a gruffity old bastard and I needed those kind of guys around me to put me in my place. Um, there's just so many different people that I can talk about. You know, we could talk about Gary Hughes, hiring me in my first opportunity to be an area scout with all the different teams I played for. One of the few teams I didn't was Montreal slash Yankees slash now Marlins. So he gave me the opportunity to be where I'm at today, 32 years later, still standing. So... I could go on and on and I could come off the show going, "Why I wish I would have said that guy's name or this guy's name. Um, but in the scouting side, when I started in the major leagues, I think back of Jim Fergusi Sr., and Kenny Bracy, Ted Ulander, Pat Dobson, and what, Bruce Keeson. And what do they got in common? They're all deceased. So it realizes now that I sit at a ballpark and I'm all by myself, I can't yell at anybody because they used to yell at me. And all the younger kids with all their goddamn laptops and everything else, it's a shame. It's a shame sometimes because we used to after a ball game just sit and have chicken wings or a beer or whatever it is just to discuss and argue and have fun and we do it the next day. That's what uh, and now in this era we're missing. We don't have the same guys around, and so it's it's sad. It's sad we all get older, but it's sad that we don't have those guys around anymore. At least to put me in my place.
0: Those are that's those are great comments. It's like. Uh the Academy Awards and you try, and I see those guys up there struggling to thank everybody. It's like, it's impossible. It's impossible to thank everybody or to remember everybody. Right. You will remember them over time, but at one time when somebody asks you, it's really difficult. Right. I know yeah. that Gary gave you your first chance as a scout, but I remember when you were a player, there's a story about Cal Ripken giving you advice in spring <laughs> training <tournament> in 1988. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that story?
3: Well, that was the year I I came to Baltimore as an invitee to camp. And everybody gets the impression that you go to a team that's not very good, that you should have an opportunity to make the team. Well, I chose the Orioles and I went to camp in that bootleg place they called Bobby Rubino or Miami and all that stuff. Well, I was there. I I thought I had a chance to make the team and they were sending me down to Rochester. And, um, and I just looked at myself, maybe it's time for me to call it quits 12 years in the game and, um so cal called me in and he smoked more than i did so um he closed the door and um and he said yeah he goes you know you want to smoke smoke so i had a pack with me and i couldn't match him because he was unbelievable but he said to me he goes billy there's four things i try to live on and i said well what are they he took a big drag he goes play as long as you can because the day it comes and you don't play anymore they take that uniform it's over it's it's finished takes a big drag and Looks at me again, he goes, if you can't do that, you go to player development. You're on the field, you're in uniform, you're teaching kids. It's a great experience. It's a great place to be. Takes another big drag. And he goes, if you can't do that, you go to scouting. Even though you're not in uniform, you're representing an organization and, and you're still in the game. Then he, all of a sudden, he takes another big drag, and another drag. And, and then I finally said, well, what, what the hell is number four? He looks with a wry grin, he goes, to be a fan and I figured it out. You know, you sit in the stands and we go to sporting events and we yell and scream at our favorite teams and they're all trying, but they either lose or they don't play very well. And fans say stupid things. And we all do. And I realize when we're sitting behind old plate and people are saying nonsense, I realize I go back to that words of Gail Ripken, play, coach, scout, and hopefully all of us don't have to ever do this, is to be a fan. And so I it was words of wisdom. And I eventually went to Rochester and I got to the big leagues. Unfortunately, I lost the 20th game. I didn't lose all 21. So I'm not taking the fall for that crap. But um, but then when, you know, they called me to end up going down and Roland Hemans assaulted the earth man. And I was my own agent. So I didn't need an agent. The only time you ever need that is probably arbitration or free agency. So I did my own dealings until um, so I ended up going off and called people and eventually drove all the way from Buffalo to well, Baltimore to Buffalo. And then Buffalo, I drove to San Francisco, uh, to Phoenix, played for the Firebirds. I asked to be released there. I ended up driving, meeting the team in Indianapolis and ended up being picked up by the Phillies. It was a 17, 18 day road trip. I ended up getting over to, um, I think it was in Pawtucket. And um, George Culver was the manager. He goes, you know, you're supposed to meet the team in Atlanta. I said, oh, shit. He goes, well, I thought you'd be happy to be on the Big Leagues. I said, well, my fiance's driving on a Fourth of July weekend from Buffalo to, to Old Orchard Beach, Maine. He goes, well, you have two choices. You can fly out of here or you can go and take the bus with us and then fly out of Portland, which I did. And she met us in the in the uh, parking lot. So then I met the team in Atlanta and then Cincinnati. And then eventually we got an apartment. And then um, all of a sudden, it was the first night game ever to be played at Wrigley, which I did not know this it was rained out. Um, but they were taking my uniform out of the bag, and so uh, Lee Thomas was there, and uh, I forget who else was the GM at the time. But um, they said, "Well, you know, your, you know your options." I said, "You know, you can be sent down." And I remember George Culver. That probably was the only mistake I made. I should have went down. They didn't have a lot of left-handed pitchers. The guy named, they had Wally Ritchie and Jeff Calhoun, but I refused to go down. And I played out the options. And I remember talking to Alex Trevino, and he says, "You know, we need a lefty in Houston." They were competing. So I talked, they said, would you consider to go to Tucson? I said, not in your life. I just played in that friggin' PCL. I played in the association, the international, the PCL, the American League, and the National League. I said, no fucking chance. So I was watching TV, and then all of a sudden, Calvin Schiraldi blew out his, his hammy or whatever else. So I was talking to the late Bill Hartford, and uh, I said, you know, would you have any interest in me to you know, play for you? He goes, uh, would you consider playing double A? And I start laughing, I said, son of a bitch, double A. So I said, I'd go. But he said, are you watching TV? I said, no, what's going on? Which I am. And he said, well, Shereldi just got blown out. Let me call you back and see what we got. Well, I got hooked up with Des Moines. I pitched absolutely brutal there. It was the last stop of the going back to the association. And um, at the end, they always, they call you in, which I liked about the Cubs. They were telling you what they thought of you and what they're going to do for the next year. So they called me in and I didn't know Billy Hartford really personally. I knew him on the phone and I came in and said, well, you guys sending me to the big leagues. And I had like a 670 seven ERA. So there, there was no chance of going to the big leagues. And so, well, no, we were wondering if you would consider being a pitching coach in the Cub organization. And all I could think of is what, well, wait a minute here. I was in the big leagues with two different teams. I said, even I can't make a decision like that. Well, the other guy they called in, they asked the same thing. And he did good arm was Lester Strode. Lester Strode, as we know the story, did many, many years as the bullpen coach for the Chicago Cubs. And I never got back to the big leagues after that year. So Billy Hartford used to always ball bust me on that as well. So I think of the the stories of Cal. I think of the stories that whole year playing with six different teams and four different organizations. I Hell, I didn't even know what kind of spikes I had because that was back when you had to color them. So I might have ran on the field with getting maroon when I should have had black. So it was a, a great experience. Uh, you know, maybe the worst thing I did was probably I, I wasted too many teams. I could have played maybe four or five more years and played with them down the road instead of you wasting four organizations in one year. So, well,
0: you know, you did so much traveling. I mean, your wife is a saint.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, she is. She raised those in, kids, and yes, she
2: did. I mean, in that's many ways. we all
3: know the wives would allow
0: us to do what we do, right. Um, I would, Mark, you
2: know, I jump in for a second, Mark? I want to ask Billy a question. Uh, and you, Mark just touched on it. You talked about the baseball people that influenced you outside of baseball in your personal life. And I got the chance to meet your wife earlier today, prepping for the show. Talk about those people that made sacrifices to allow you to explore that career in baseball.
3: Well, you know, the beginning of my career, um, I always, I mean, we're talking about the stories about when they sign you. and That's another thing I wanted to bring up too. I, first of all, I signed in 1977 with the Reds. Um, the first thing they asked was, that, you're not really going out with anybody, are you? I said, well, no, no. So eventually, I eventually got married the first time um, in 19, I think it was 79, late. Unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, my ex-wife died of pancreatic cancer at 43. And it really was unfortunate because I was just starting my, my you know, move, going up, still immature, not really, couldn't take care of myself, let alone children. Um, And so we tried to make a go of it, but uh, we worked for seven years and we went through that segment and then um, I moved on and I met my wife now in 1987. I was the last one to ever pitch in War Memorial Stadium, which is funny how a hometown boy wins the last game at the Rockpile. And she came down to give me a high school ring. Now, mind you, I was still married at this time, so she was in Nashville. And so... She came down with a box and she said, this is your high school ring. You know, I know you have a boy. And so I said, yeah, well, all of us are meeting each other at this sports bar. My parents, my brother, my sister, her her brother and sister actually came over. So she came and we stayed up till 430 in the morning. Now, time goes by, I get called up and um, my ex-wife sent me walking papers in the locker room in Cincinnati. Well, my older sister don't sign them, which I signed them. Didn't really give a shit at that time, so I signed him. But I called her in Buffalo, and I said, come on down. So she left corporate America, came down to uh, Cincinnati. We eventually got married at the end of 88, uh, and we've ever been since. Since we went out with each other in high school for two and a half years, we met each other at a ballpark. Mike Belotti actually told her that I was talking about her or something, and we've been married for 35 years. So she got the back end of it somewhat. She saw the journey, and then she obviously saw the journey in scouting for sure with you know doing Latin America and in the area time that we don't realize how much time we're on the road as well. So I was blessed. I had parents that were married for 73 years. They were always around. I had an older brother that played Division I basketball, and the Buffalo Braves were around. So I you know, I saw and saw him with teammates, whether he was playing with Randy Smith or Calvin Murphy or Bob Lanier. So I was around, and he was like my father and uh, very reserved uh, very handy, which I can't tie my shoelaces. So they had to take care of the guy. So my father's a loving man. My mother would stick her finger down your throat if she had to. Um, and I remember my my brother goes, Jesus, he looked at my dad. he goes, where did we get him? And um, my father with a wry grin says, he comes from the Irish side because my dad and my brother, they're all German. And so I laughed, but I mean, really my brother was a, a mentor to me in a lot of ways. But there's, again... It's another, I I was blessed to have great family. I, people always around me Um, and being the baby, I was allowed to do a lot of things. That was the mistake of the lake. My parents had me at 43 and 40. So my dad was a wire chief. So when I was a Yankee fan growing up, I'd go sometimes at late nights because Buffalo didn't get Yankee games. You had to get it through Schenectady and the late games you would eventually get it. So because it'd be 11 and you didn't get all the, the friction. But then I'd slam it; and bang my, you know, the the radio and my dad go, Jay, stop it up there because I was doing my imitation of you know Bobby Mercer's approach and everything else. So I'd go to the to the Rand Building at Western Union and I'd watch the ticker and everything else, and then fall asleep under the chair, and then he'd take me home. So I was always taking scores, always knowing uniforms, and always knowing the players. And like somebody once said to me, "You're a, you're a front runner, Yankees." I said, "Well, you fucking don't know what you're talking about. The late '60s and the early '70s, the Yankees were horseshit." But to me, with Horace Clark and Bobby Mercer and Ronnie Bloomberg and Jake Gibbs, that was my team. And so, and eventually, I was always like that. Even in my heart, uh, when the Yankees started buying players, well, when they moved Mercer out of center to right, I, had a, I was pissed. And then when Mercer got traded to the Giants, I was almost, it was over. I was not a Yankee fan anymore. And then they started getting free agency. Everybody laughs about this, but I never became a Yankee fan anymore because I rather despise guys like Reggie Jackson or whoever else was coming over, versus rooting for him. So even at a young age, I was anti, I'd rather see the core players. So Will can attest to this. The Rockies one year had every position player, even pitchers, all drafted by the Colorado Rockies. You should be proud of that. Win we'll or lose. That's true baseball back in my day, not this day, back right. then.
0: Well, right. you know, speaking about now, now you know, you've <laughs> had tremendous success as a scout, um what do you think gives you an edge what part of your work ethic what what a part of what you do gives you an edge when uh you know against younger scouts that have all this new technology uh, when you're scouting young prospects or or a veteran for
3: a trade well even when we started it's a new profession so you start learning, you start understanding what the pitching coaches were trying to do for you. And all of a sudden you're behind home plate and you realize that was what he was trying to do for me. And so through time, it's repetitious. So the more you can use a comparison, and I always use the comparison when I was cross checking, let's say I was going to see Denard Spann from Tampa Catholic. The comparison would be Kenny Lofton because of time you see the players you played with. Like when I go back to A-ball and you look at how many guys, even though we've now depleted six teams now to four teams and there's 30 clubs, so there's more guys getting opportunities to go to the big leagues. You still look at say, that guy reminds me of the guy I played with, which I can attest to it because I played with so many guys or played against guys. So through time and experience, you look through that. In that hourglass will like, say, look at his mechanics. Look at how easy it is. Look at how free and easy. Look at his direction. Look at his balance. Gets through top to bottom, down the hill. They miss like here and there. It's nobody's fault today, but they rush him up quickly. And I'm not even going to get into the mental part of it. I'm talking about, yeah, they can blow 96 and 98, but they got 40 command, which means below or even worse. So as we were all taught, you have to command your fastball and you have to throw breaking balls behind the count and different hitters. And you have to not be afraid. And if you can't do that, then you just can't play in the big leagues. Unfortunately, it's a numbers game now. And so you've got to rush guys up quickly, even with good arms, a lack of command. Um, And breaking balls sometimes are obsolete. You know, so, I mean, we laugh. How does a guy command a breaking ball when he can't command his fastball? Whose fault is that? Well, you know, I'm not not even touching the the mental part of this game. You know the ups and downs. Even no matter what time we're level, all of us have played. Um, that's that's a hard thing to go through too. That's why we had veterans that we sat next to. That's why coaches who try to pump you up. Understand that you're you're not God. You're going to have some good days and you're going to have some bad ones. Um, but today, it's just so much of a rush, rush, and it's you know, whose fault is it? Well, we did have to have another hour of this show to talk about that too. So.
1: Right. You know, Billy, you touched on so many good points there that, you know, we we grew up in an era that where we were taught a lot of things. We gained a lot of wisdom and, and the game is devaluing the experience and the wisdom and the things that you just talked about are nowhere in numbers. They're, they're, they're with our eyes. They're with 140 to 100, whether you're a minor leaguer or 160 games a year that you sat and watched every day. We right. sat and we watched the games, and we, and we said, "Oh my gosh, look at, you know, you know." I remember playing against you know your your guys in instructional league and Nick Kasaske, guys that, that 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 I pitched against. I go, "Wow, this this guy's going to play in the big leagues," you know, or whoever it was. Or watching you pitch and right. say that guy's filthy, that guy's nasty, or whatever. And it has all been devalued, and yeah, there's there's there is definitely value in numbers and looking at stuff, but there's nothing can replace the things that so many of us have lived in our lives that has become devalued now.
3: Well, well, I, I will say this, you know, and it's again, it's nobody's fault. When you came to the system, there was always those players in front of you, the veterans, and they taught you that. They right. taught you how to play. They taught you this is the Reds way. This is the Orioles way. This is the Cleveland way. We didn't give a shit what other people did. This is the right. way we do it. Right. Um, and I start thinking more and more about the game and why we don't We don't have veterans staying around. We've let them run the asylum. You know, right. whether we agreed or disagreed with some of the coaches or their philosophies, it was – I've always said this and I, I mean this just because I always wear it on my sleeve before being from Buffalo – the Buffalo Mafia or the people from every community that has those loyal fans, yeah. those guys come and they go. I will always be a Bills fan. When if somebody talk about Jim Kelly, I said, well, first of all, if somebody asked me who's your favorite player, I could say OJ, I could say I could, you know, people don't realize that the Buffalo Bills were an AFL AFL team, one of the originals. So I used to see the rock, but I didn't see Cookie Gilchrist, but Kemp I did in you know when I was a kid, just a game or two, or La Monica, But I said we we as fans go to see our team. When we we hurt when they lose, we feel great when they win, but they come and go. That uniform represents the community. If you don't want to wear it that way, we always laugh about the Phillies fans. And they are they are brutal. But I laughed at Patty Burrell. I said, "Patty, you were just an absolutely awful outfielder." But and they boo him and everything else. But he played hard. And, you know, the one thing Philadelphia fans can be appreciative is when they win, they stand for you, and they'll stick by you up through it oh, thick yeah. and thin. If you yeah. dog it, they're going to walk you to the car. Let me inform you. Because they're paying the money to watch it, hard-earned money that they're going to watch their team play, good or bad. Because every year something changes. So when Josh Allen's done or Jim Kelly's done, is the next batch of guys come. And those fans will still be rooting for their club. So so for one thing I will say when I walk to a ballpark, do not dog it on me cuz you're not that good. Let me That's inform it. you. Cuz people pay a lot of money to see whether you're just a below average player or an average player whatever it is, but give them effort. When I see guys don't run balls out or don't know how to throw to bases or get picked up or don't pick up the third base coach, I said why not just put a cigar in that guy's mouth in a wheelchair cuz he's not looking he's looking at right field line. He's not picking up the third base coach. So right. we've lost the principles of the game. We have allowed them to run the asylum. First of all, we are all been blessed. But let me inform you, this is our team. It should be yours. But if you dog it, the old days, you sat and they put somebody else in. They're stressing right. these guys. That's their fault. Not mine. No. Not mine. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, there's, well, the, a, there's uh, a bigger element now of, of people wanting to be friends with players rather than give them the discipline. And you can see – It's real easy when you go out and scout and see an organization that they pay attention to detail. They don't let guys get away with stuff of the minor leagues. And then you see ones that do. And they can be really good teams with really good players. But you know what? Something always bad happens
3: to those teams because they don't have that discipline. Right, right. We got got, got a few players. I mean, I was up in Washington watching the Phillies in a, what is it, a four-game or whatever. It was five-game, four-game series. And I remember watching it. Dabrowski was going through the elevator, and it was a long game. And I always remember Real Muto. Now, we know Real Muto from Miami days. And there was a ground ball, and it was thrown to second, back to first, and they called it a double play. While well, they went upstairs to review it. Now, Real Muto's a, a catcher, so we know we can give him the benefit of the doubt with all, you know, kneeling down and all the stuff that those guys got. To, they're warriors. He ran 4.18. Now, and for your viewers, 4.18 is an above-average runner from the right side. And he, you know, he could have ran four three three four five whatever he wanted. But he ran above average. They went upstairs. They called it safe. The next guy came up was Harper. He had a ball in the gap. It ended up scoring a run. It tied the game. And eventually, the game went into extra innings. And they won. On I think either Real Muto got a hit or something else. So I was telling Nebraska, with all that game, for all that stuff, was, who do you think won that game? The guy Real- that won the game was Real Muto. Because if he doesn't run it out, the game's over. The Phillies lose. And remember – The Phillies won by one game as a wild card. Now, they would have still won it because of the tiebreaker. I'm just saying as laughable as 162-game schedules goes, that game while I'm sitting there is a reflection. What Dombrowski tells me, he goes, you know what we did, Billy, just between you and me? We sent that to the minor league camp to show and prove. Don't assume. Because Real Immuno won that game. Billy, I saw him in in September
1: score from first on a 3-2 pitch on a single to right field. Uh, he was running on the pitch. He knew that the outfielder jogged after the ball, and when the guy missed the cutoff, he ended up scoring from first base on a single—the winning run—in the eighth inning of a, of, of a game, and that, <laughs> that was against Cincinnati. And that's why Cincinnati finished where they did, and that's why the well, Phillies. Well, went well, to where well they...
3: I think the fable of the story with that is, and if you and obviously he's locked up a great deal with have leadership qualities and how he demonstrates how he plays. It rubs off on every player in that locker room. And so when you have those kind of players that plays with that heart and drive, now everybody can't have Kirk Kipson that wants to beat the shit out of you because Tram is a wonderful person the Lance is a good, decent dude, but you need some of that feisty bastard like Gibby. But if you get a guy like that and you get a coaching staff that watches and reflections and shows that, it rubs off on everybody, not just the major leaguers, but from the bottom up. And so you're absolutely right. That just, win or lose, he gave every ounce of his ability and he doesn't have to look in the mirror as a team and say, I wish I would have ran harder. I wish I would have picked up my
1: coach. And in the Phillies case, Bryce Harper is highly paid, but he plays the game that way as well.
3: Listen, Will, you know how I feel about him. I, I know I was at a card show up in Tucson and one of the old time scouts who I really respect, Ricky Schroeder, he doesn't like Harper at all. I said, listen, there's this. There's, you got to use this for me personally. You're talking to the wrong guy. I'm not into whether I like a guy or don't like him. Hey, Mike Schmidt was a prick, a jerk. I was best to play with two of the best players in all time, Johnny Bench and Mike Schmidt. There's a reason why they have egos. They're not there. Jack Morris wasn't a happy-go-lucky guy either. I'm just saying any time I've ever watched Bryce Harper play, he runs the ball out. He plays the game the right way. And you know what? I'll take 10 Bryce Harpers over a lot of other guys in the major leagues right now. Regardless without
1: of they're going. Without a doubt. I've seen them hit one hopper's back to the pitcher and run a four two yep. in September when they're out of it. And that that that's respect for the
3: game. Yep. I agree. I agree. I agree. So, I agree.
0: When I was when I was a minor league manager, I never did this, but I always wanted to do it because I thought it would send a message. Um I you know how you play inter squad games in, in spring training when you're in the minor leagues? Sure. I I always wanted to tell my first baseman, if a guy doesn't run the ball out, I want you to drop the ball, wait to and and pick it up just before he gets to the bag. Right. I said, to send a message to everybody. That's why you That's why you run it out. You never know when the guy's going to clank it, that's and then right. it's going to be a real Mudo moment. You know I, what I mean? No, you true. never know. That's why you run it. That's why you always throw to the cutoff, man. Firm throws right to his chest. It doesn't matter if it's routine. Just get in a habit of doing it.
3: Right. Well, I'm well, going we, to be fair to that. And I, again, that this is words of what I hear. I don't know this. I hear that some of these guys are going through the system. They're they're told if you don't believe you can beat this out, don't go crazy. Take you know just you know pace yourself. And I almost laughed it pace. yourself. you, you got four at bats in a game. You're 26 years old and you're pacing yourself for the same <laughs> reason you said. But if they're telling them this, then we can't necessarily blame the player. We got a player. We've got to blame the system,
1: without a doubt. Well,
0: nope. I can tell you a story. When I was with the Indians in in my early, probably the early 90s, um, late 80s, and uh, Albert Bell had come up. Right. And Albert Bell, you know, we know what kind of talent Albert had, and we know that Albert had a lot of issues and problems and stuff. But this guy ended up being a guy that was a dynamic player and he played every inning of every game, too. He, he was one of those guys once he got established in the big leagues. But what helped him – I mean, he was sent home in the minor leagues for not running balls out. Right. And he got called out of the big leagues, and I was there. And it was like the ninth inning of the game. And it a runner at first and third with one out – And Albert hit a ground ball to the hole of shortstop, kind of got jammed. Right. And didn't run the ball out. And they turned a double play. When he could have easily beat it, we would have won the game. Right. Well. He got sent out. He got sent back to the minors that night. And that's the kind of stuff that needs to happen to this guy. Sure. Right. He got sent home. He knew it was going to happen because he used to get sent home from the minor leagues. Right. I mean, those are the kind of things that, no, I don't want to cause any problems, or they'll file a grievance, they'll do this, I don't want to have the agent yelling at me. People don't know how to handle people anymore.
3: You know, Mark, there's still some teams, and I'm still blessed to watch 30 major league clubs for how many years I've been doing it. Um, And, you know, the people of St. Louis should be very proud of their team, regardless of money. Some have more money than others, and they have to be a little bit more creative. But whoever still has the philosophies, every time I've ever watched the St. Louis Cardinals, they play the game the right way. And that's not taking any away from other clubs, I'm sure, and that's not fair. There are players that still play the game and and play as hard as they can as well. But as an organization whole, through through time, and I can only go through my time of the 70s to today, I I still look at, you know, and Cleveland, I I can say this, you know, whether there are arch rivals in our division and obviously I'm a little biased because of Terry and and Carl and all that stuff, but they get the most. Somebody's doing the right thing with their pitchers. They throw strikes. They're around the plate, whether they get them from other trades or whatever else, somebody has got to get credit. They get the best of their players. Now, are they going to win world series? No, they don't have enough ability. That's just the way life goes. They have enough ability to win. And then you look at our club and you say to yourself, how do you guys do this? Well, that's another story in itself. And I don't even have any Budweiser's in me right now to even go through that one. But You sit there and you think, well, here they are, Minnesota, always had tradition. I mean, think of time and time and time again. And I still start thinking the first words that comes out of my mouth. And there's others who can argue and say other teams too, but it's the St. Louis Cardinals. And one of the few teams I didn't play for. But I see how they play the game. I see the fans and they wear their almost college atmosphere with their red and their white. They show up. Do they win every World Series? No. Do they play hard? I would say most fans would say yes. And they're still appreciative to go to the ballpark and enjoy it. I know baseball is a big thing in St. Louis and some other places, maybe few and far between. Um, But those guys and their system through all the years, for at least my opinion, has always stayed as good as it can be. Let's face it, this is 2023. We can't go back to 1970, 1980 through the draft, through the money, through arbitration, free agency, the dollar signs. Who's got more money? Yes, they got revenues. But St. Louis seems to play the game, even back when I think of the 70s, 80s, when I played against them. Billy, uh, George Kissel was a big part of that.
1: And Mark and I were fortunate enough, and I know he spent some time in Instructional League when we were with the Indians. And we would we were in St. Pete, we shared with them. And George Kissel had a big impact on what Johnny Goral and Dominic Cheedy were doing as coordinators and our hitting coordinators and our catching coordinators in Cleveland, because we got to share and we got to sit down at the end of the day and have a couple Budweiser beers with him and Teddy Simmons right? and Hub Kittle and Clarence Jones and the guys that they had there that had been doing some things that were working and they were working for a long time and St. Louis. And we, we, you know, we adapted some of those things and it was a such a benefit mm-hmm. and it was such a, for me as a young pitching coach, it was like a shut up, get your notebook and take notes right. and go, wow, that's awesome. Holy mackerel. And, and awesome. we miss
3: that. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. I guess when I came up with the Reds, it like, I bring up Ronnie Plaza, but Plaza yeah. was a disciple probably of that group, that St. Louis group. And then you had Carl Keel when Plaza went over to Oakland, they had those core guys that it was our system but you're you know you're easing in the crawl walk routine and so we're running the show not you and that's how everybody was whatever you were whatever where you came from whether the south the north black white spanish guys it was always this is the reds way this was the orioles way this was the cardinals way i that's it's right. unfortunate because we just don't have it's you know when you start looking at teach team you say well is he original is he original where'd he come from where did you know, it's – and that's why it's always been fun to listen to some of the players. You know, they're not all going to play for 6, 8, 10 guys because they make so much money they can almost retire nowadays. But you are still some guys maybe around. But as you just said, there's not a lot of white-haired guys anymore. And they just don't respect them because there's more of them than, than the old guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's sort of yeah. embarrassing sort of. It's too bad because it's sort of like the old line I used to – like my aunt would always say – She's 102, and I've always made this comment, and it's something that always sticks out to you. She always says, I am history. You read history. You better listen. All you do is (laughs) have books. I live that kind of life. And so if we don't have the Bertie Tebbets of the world, and we don't have Charlie Silveras or some of the old Eddie Bachmans, if we don't have those kind of guys that you and me were associated with to listen to, as my wife said, did you give them any stories? And I laughed. I said, I think they've heard my stories and then some.
1: Well, that was, you know, uh, you know, we we with the Marlins, like you just named off, Gary Hughes hired all those people as master scouts. You talk about an education. Yep. You know, and that was after the meeting, sitting in a room, having a few beers, and just taking notes. Right. That's true. About how to become a better scout, how to become a, and. And the stories that
3: were just unbelievable in the history of the game, it was incredible. Well, I don't think that anybody today, and and I hope I'm wrong. I hope people will call your show and say, you're wrong. is I don't think because of the young generation, it's no knock on them. This is their world now, is that there's two things you either do. You absorb old people in their history, or as I tell my kids, give them the common courtesy and say, sorry, Aunt Jean, I got to leave, but one day I'll come. Because a lot of them don't want to listen to it. They've already got all the answers. Now we all we yeah. had answers at twenty thirties. Now we're all got gray hair and we're all in our sixties and seventies. We get it. That comes from time, experience, veteranship. So when we look at this, there's a lot of kids. There may be a few that want to grasp old ideas and thought process. And who did you, who was your hardest hitter? And who was your favorite teammates? And what organization did you like the best? Or what's your best city? You know, where do you stay? Where do you eat? I mean, it's it helps us too because it makes us still young. But the younger generation, I don't know whether it's a fear factor or whether we have enough guys, or maybe they don't really give a rat's ass one, one iota. Remember, we used to listen to the game. We got all the TV games, all you want to watch on television, and half the time most people don't watch them anyway. We might, might because we're working in, in baseball. But we got all this new technology. you know. But back then, we only had one game on a Saturday. Whether you liked the game or not, you watched it. Yeah. Or the radio, well, you listen well, to well. your favorite team. You listen to announcers. Well, These kids well.
1: don't do that anymore. No, I'll throw this out to Mark. You know, I used to watch the game in my mind's eye listening on the radio. Right. You know, as, as a kid, growing up listening to Richie Ashburn and Harry Callis, and I could see Steve Carlton pitching against Bob Gibson and going, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. You know, in my eyes, I knew their deliveries because I tried to copy them. Right. You know, I knew, I, I, I knew Willie Stargill's hitting style. I knew all those guys because – we studied that. That's what we did. We yeah. said, "Well, if, if they're
3: we that," the we emulated those guys on TV. We, right. we had stickball in the backyard. We yeah. emulated their approach, right? You know, and you and you're right. You bring up Harry Callis, and I and I, I hate to not mention. You know, we talk about all the players, but you know, I, I sit around and think about the three Hall of Famers. I also with the radio guys. I was a, lucky and brief that my last big league team was Philadelphia Phillies, and I had Harry Callis. I also oh, had right. Marty Brenneman in Cincinnati, and I have obviously had. Uh, what's his name? Oh my God! Now I lost my memory. Ernie Harwell. Ernie Harwell. And so here we are. I'm a, associated walking to ballparks or other talking to three very relic guys, and we look at the newspaper business. It becomes obsolete anymore. It's a dinosaur. We don't have that. We all this technology. So all those great writers, those pictures you go into stadiums and see, like Cleveland with all those different writers, they're gone. Yeah. They're finished. We think our industry's bad. Their industry's brutal.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's just funny. I think a lot of the issues with players in today's world, you know, the way they're brought up, the way people are very tentative to correct them, the way they young players absorb things um, and they think they did something wrong or they're not any good or they're bad. If anybody gives them any constructive criticism, that's why when I was at the Rockies, I used to always have a meeting with all the new players. And I said, hey, listen, we want you to get better. And when we say something, an adjustment you need to make or, or something you need to pay attention to, we're not criticizing you. We're trying to help you because they grow up in a society. They don't hear a lot of truths. Right. I mean, it, it goes it goes with the, the gigantic uh, trophies they give every kid that performs. They're, they're getting so much gratification for not really achieving anything that when somebody questioned it, they don't know how to handle it.
3: Right. Well, Mark, you got to almost go back to the time we talked about baseball schools. When I started scouting 32 years ago, Rick Lancelotti opened a baseball school in Buffalo. I thought it would never hit. And obviously years go by, there's six or seven. Everybody's got a school now. Whether you played or not, it doesn't make a difference. Everybody's got a school making money. Um, but we used to play stickball. We used to play, we'd be proud to play for your high school team. We used to play for our summer teams. And when guys played either college level or high school level, or in some guys' pro, we'd play in the city parks and we'd play against each other in Muni. And, and after the game, we'd have cookouts or whatever else, and people would bring their lawn chairs, and you still had pride to play in your community. Well, that's gone. And the reason is because of travel baseball, and everybody doesn't stay around and play in high schools beneath them, regardless of where you're from. And so it's sad, but that's where we're at. We used to play little league games around your neighborhood and played at parks and, and people remember how I remember when we played against you when you were nine and 10. Well, as much as baseball is supposed to be the national pastime, we know that's not true now. Um, but we've lost community things that yeah. used to bring us all together. We've also lost that too. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's uh,
0: those are good points. I mean, you know, I always ask every scout that we have on, uh, what advice you would give a young pitcher or his parents about what it takes to become a f- professional player?
3: Uh, you know what, Mark? I, I, Will always made a good comment, and I, I always, always remember things that people say. This was many, many years ago, working with Mr. Lancelotti. And we'd always do it because it was the wintertime before we had to go off on spring break to we'll see our colleges in Florida, wherever you went. And uh, Will would always make the comment, he goes, how do you teach those turds? I said, Will, to make them the best turd. Because That's to right. me, I don't really necessarily discuss or talk about the major league level, because most people, even today, the chances are slim and none. You're better off getting still a lottery ticket and you have better opportunity to do that. But what we do as instructors is may A1 make it make it fun. Like I would say, you know, do you feel the love in the building? You know, high five to the sky, you know i still dance, even though I'm 65 with these kids, although I got left with Louie, I can't dance. But I would get those kids to enjoy. The parents can pay their $100. The one thing that kid's not going to do is roll his eyes. So I told the kid, I said, you know, don't just do this because your mom and dad want you to come here. So Lance Lancelotti used to say, I don't know who's running this baseball school, me or you. I said, well, I'll never see that kid again. That kid came back. I said, he wants me? Of all people, me? And so he wasn't, I'll just use word that Will says. He was a turd. Now, whether he made a Little League team or whether he made a high school team or whatever it was, because most of the time when we have these schools, we're not going to see the guy. We're lucky if they can go play college baseball but or maybe make their high school team. But it was appreciative and enjoyment to teach at that time. You know, that's past me now and everything else. The younger generation, when you get to the level you're talking about, Mark, is it the minor leaguers is, you know, to, to enhance and obviously tone up their skills, their mechanics, something else, and mentally understand. Now they got all the video in the world, you know, take the strengths and weaknesses. But first of all, we have to get our strengths and weaknesses before we think about the hitters as well. And then there's the mental part of it, the preparation. You know, so and that goes in, and I, knocked, I I clap my hands to every high school coach or little league coach we've had. Not all of them are star players. Some display it sporadically, but they do it from the kindness of their heart. But when you get to the college level, you get to the pro level, you know. They hopefully some when they fail, they turn to you and they look for your advice. This is where I'm not saying there isn't some good young coaches, but those old veterans. That's why you know it's like school. The A ball guy loved me. The Double A guy despised me. So somebody would always say, "I like that A ball coach because he really loved me," but I hate that coach at Double A. But then years go by, you realize that that guy was trying to teach you something. That I had George Sugar. So I always laugh about mentor-to-mentor. Mentor. I had I had George Sugar, born and raised in Buffalo. Dutchman you can be, he's a, he's a real Dutchman. Then I had God named Sparky Anderson, mentor-to-mentor, mentor. and then I had Pete Rose, mentor-to-mentor-to-mentor. To mentor to mentor. Now, I, I'm never gonna be any one of those three because I never got into coaching, which I thought that was my calling. But I'm just saying, here's an old Dutchman, then you watch a guy like Sparky to do what he's done, then we know how Pete Rose played. So. All I'm saying is that veteran guys, whether it's the players, the coaches, that's how you enhance and help young kids. Also, you know, the crawl, the walk, the run. Yes, it's about mechanics. Yes, it's like teaching that. Yes, it's teaching maybe grips and all the stuff or when the kids have to throw from the stretch and learning from there or vary things. But that's time. It's like a page. I can't jump to page five. I got to get to page one. And when I'm done with one and he can get through one, then he goes to two. So, you know, Roger Craig would never want to throw, let me throw a split. And everybody's notorious that Roger Craig ever, had, everybody had to throw a split. Well, I was a low three-quarter sidearm guy. That wasn't going to happen. I could throw that big widey breaking ball and the two-seam sinker and everything else. Roger never touched it with a 10-foot pole, And a lot of it may because of arm slot and everything else. No, there were guys at the Reds. I mean, for the Tigers, that were notorious for splits. Jack and... And Randy O'Neill threw it, and some other guys, I'm sure Carl, I don't know, I think Carl Willis threw it too. But that was always notorious. Oh, the split was taught by him, or the circle change was taught by this guy. You know, I was blessed to play with, you know, somebody once said about Jack Morris, you know, how good he was. I said, hey, I said, I played with a guy named Mario Soto when I came over to Detroit before Mario got hurt. Mario was dominating. So I used to think Mario was just as good as Jack. Now we know Jack's in the Hall of Fame and his heart and his drive and his desire besides everything else, his abilities, got him to be a Hall of Famer. It's like me talking about who's the best shortstop. I played with five Hall of, all of Famers, and I should be including Davey Concepcion too. So am I supposed to take Larkin, Concepcion, Ripken, Trammel, Larkin? I mean, you go on and on and on. You know, you've got to think, well, how good are these shortstops are? I was just blessed to have those guys. Same thing by having Lou Whitaker. I could have named Lou Whitaker as a Hall of Famer. How's he not in so, or I could tell you about Dave Parker. Harold Baines is in. I'm not knocking Harold. Parker, I play with him, play with O'Neill, play with Davis, Chet Lemon, Darrell Evans. I mean, we go on and on with these stories. But the bottom line, we were all taught by somebody in the core of the people, whether at the low level or the high school or the college or the pro. We walk away with reflections and thinking to myself, I remember him. I didn't like him. He didn't like me either, but he taught me something. Might have been mental. Everybody can teach somebody a little thing. So we all have mentors. We have all different ideas. We have all the things. And even in scouting, we're not perfect. We all have egos. We better have egos. But, you know, there's always, even with those, you know, I hate to say, the nerds, the analytical, they may come up to me and say, hey, you know what? That son of a bitch had some good idea there. I'm, I'm not going to buy into it completely. But that's what makes the world go round. Just like being Democrat or Republican. And we're not going to get into those stories, are we?
1: No. not That's definitely. a next show. <laughs> <laughs> hey now, uh I, I want to defend myself. Now, oh you Billy better defend I, yourself. You better. When Billy and I had these conversations, I had just come off of being a double A pitching coach <laughs> and going to winter ball and coaching in the Dominican oh, Winter boy. League and having about four or five different big league guys there. And I'm doing camps with kids that don't want to be there and I never called them turds, but <laughs> you I, I used to say, Billy, I mean they don't want to be there. How can I pretend that I want to be there? No, that's
3: true. That is. Well, that make, make it a habit,
1: the, habit though. Make but, it a habit. But, but over the years, a lot of the things that you said always made sense. And as my son got older and I was helping, you know, coach a travel ball team or whatever, I, I utilized those things that, that that you talked about because, you know, you know, you were always focused on how am I going to get Charlie Nagy to the big leagues, not – not ha- you know how am I going to get this kid to throw at least one strike in a game if he right. if the coach puts him in the
3: pitch? That's a, that's right. That's true. I mean you know I mean it's sort of like you and me scouting. You know and I mean in a mean way because we both did our amateur stuff, regardless how many years we did it. Um, somebody laughed. I said you know you go watch uh, Bryce Harper, or when I watch Josh uh, Josh Hamilton. You know I always say who's the best high school player or any player you ever saw with tools, everything else. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not in awe because of the guys I was around. But, I mean, he always comes to my mind because I said, you know, there wasn't anything that Josh Hamilton couldn't do. But if we dropped him in the first round, I said, boy, was was I a smart drafted guy. I mean, you you know, everybody knows who he is. The draft was unique because it was late rounds. And I always remember our last draft with Casey McKeon as the scouting director. We took Joey Votto. And I still think even as much as I like taking gambles, I didn't have enough balls to do that one playing. I played in the Intercounty league too. And high school baseball was a non-existent in Canada. And Joey couldn't run, couldn't do this. He's playing against subpar competition. And Casey and John Kessler saw him in Florida or something. So we took him as a sandwich pick, which, you know, everybody wants to give us credit. We should. It was our last draft. But people don't realize in the 19th round, we took a guy out of senior high college, out of Wheaton College, that played 10 years in the major league, and that was also our last draft, was a guy named Chris Denorfia. So we should be more proud about Chris DeNorfia than somewhat Joey Votto because nobody in the right mind even thought about this guy and was a senior, missed out. And Peter Gammons wrote, everybody imaginable in the Boston Globe, saying how everybody's a prospect in the Boston community everybody area. Everybody in
0: New England except yeah. him.
3: and we ended up taking a guy that was a no scout there, I walk in and I said, oh, my God, is it, you, know, I, you know, I was going to a game at 4 o'clock anyway with our area guy, John Brickley. But here we are, I'm watching him. We get the identification number. When it comes to the draft, we end up taking DeNorfia. And now the history has been told about Chris Norvia's career. He should be very proud, and the Cincinnati Reds should be very proud, and John John Brickley should be very proud that he signed probably the best of the draft. Now, we know the other guy's got a chance to be a Hall of Famer. That's not take anything away from Joey Votto. But that just tells us about the draft, too. How now it's 20 rounds and think about that and how much money they're saving. I get it. We know numbers. We can we can figure that out. But then we wouldn't have drafted guys like Jay Howell in the 33rd round. We wouldn't have got Ken Griffey Sr. in whatever round he went. Hell, a lot of us might not even been drafted if we didn't have a draft. So that's another story in itself about the amateur side of it or losing two minor league teams. Um, We can go on and on and on. I'm thankful I'm 65 years old. When the day comes and I leave, I'm going to give everybody a hug, who liked me or didn't like me, and they can kiss my arse because I'm done. done.
2: (laughs) I think, Bill, has been a great interview, Mark and Will. uh, We've had had him here for almost an hour. Um, We appreciate all that time. Any last questions? No, I don't have have any
0: questions. I just have a statement about, you know, like we always talk about it's about the player. It's about the player, whether you're a scout or whether you're a coach. And, you know, the Denorfia uh, story is a good one because, you know, some of the biggest uh, accomplishments in my career and you guys as scouts in your career are guys that nobody really gave a chance and sometimes it's a, giving them an opportunity. And it's also the words you used when you talked to that guy to make him feel like he belonged or he had an opportunity to become something special. And my coach as, a, as my career as a coach, I always had more, you know, I'd have 20-game winners and 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 uh, uh, all-star players, and that kind of stuff. Obviously, I love that, and, and I appreciated. it. I hope they appreciate it if I gave them something that maybe helped them achieve that. But uh, I had a lot of pride in guys that were borderline guys, guys that weren't supposed to get to the big leagues that got there. And then I felt like I could help them compete at the big league level and even have a career. Those are the guys that I remember uh, fondly and and feel like I had an impact. And it's the same thing with scouting. I mean, when you find a guy or you give somebody an opportunity that other people weren't going to give him and he ends up being special, that's, that's you giving him that opportunity and maybe saying a few choice words to him along the way.
2: Well, I think our audience of uh, 11,500 subscribers, 46 countries, grassroots to front offices, I think the the one thing they get from you and Will each week is you guys tell the truth, you have a respect for the game. And I hope parents out there try to see coaches out like these guys. And, And of course, Bill today, I think our audience will, they'll sense your intensity, your passion for the game. That was loud and clear. But the one thing I think that they got from you is you'll tell the truth, and that's what kids need out there. So, mm-hmm. thank you for coming on today. Uh, I mean, just a treat. Our audience got over an hour of knowledge, and I, I know they're going to love the show. Please download, listen, like, subscribe. You can follow us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, and you can now get us on social media, which everybody knows I hate, but I've been jumping on it lately with Instagram and Twitter, and now Facebook. Uh, reading some of the, I'm writing about some of the questions our audience asks. Mark and Will, thank great you. job today.
1: Dave, Dave, can I add a quick Billy yeah. share? Yeah, I want you talk about
2: that camp? Talk about your camp. Well, uh, okay. nothing
1: camp. Oh no, no, no. I I want to tell uh, <clears throat> 1992 Florida Marlins expansion team. Gary U says you guys got to run about five or six tryout camps. We're doing tryout camps all over. Billy and I are splitting up the whole new n- northeast New England corridor. So, we did a joint camp in Massachusetts, and I think Melbourne, Massachusetts. I had a part time scout whose son had pitched for me with the Indians, and he brought a lot of kids out. We had about 85 kids there. Billy and I went out the night before. It was hot and muggy and humid. We stayed out a little bit too late. I said, Look, Billy, I'll throw BP. Well, I threw for about an hour and a half. I was soaking ring and wet. Finally, I, I couldn't throw anymore. I said, Billy, can you throw? So he goes over to his car. He had a pair of slacks on. I was wearing shorts and a, and a pullover, Marlins top. He had slacks and a, and a polo shirt, he put on his red Philly spikes. He went out, he was the best pitcher there. So I go, could- Called Gary Hughes afterward. He goes, "How was your guys' camp?" I go, "Well, Scherer was the only guy I would assign. <laughs> he was eight, He was eighty-eight to ninety-one with plus sync. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> slacks, less right? Yeah, yeah we, we I should have been slacks when I was pitching. Good. Yeah. So, yeah,
1: so yeah, but guys, uh, guys yeah, thank
2: you. You know, you really
1: know the other thing we're yep. uh, I have a, a pitching and catching camp in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Uh, this on February 18th at Sports at the Beach, uh, Brandon Duckworth, who we've had on the show and Jesse Levis will be our coaches along with myself and a few other people and hoping to get a good turnout there, uh, three hours, $75 and, uh, you'll get a lot of professional instruction.
2: Can't beat it. I got a bunch of people inquired on Facebook, so I'll send them your way Okay, as well. And, Guys, phenomenal! This is episode 116 in total. Uh, Real Voices of the Game production, and this is uh, this is our show, A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Mark Wiley and Will George. Guys, thanks so much.
3: Okay, take, take care, Mark. Dave, thanks, Billy. Thanks, thanks guys. You. Good job, guys. See you, guys. With
2: us a second. Oh,
1: stay on, Billy. You did it.